0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, reset that counter. The George Massey Tunnel becomes the latest piece of infrastructure hit by a truck. When does this all end? Plus, as TransLink continues to look for more funding for Victoria and Ottawa to expand, why are we afraid to discuss mobility pricing? And with Site C being built and a network of hydroelectric dams that have been around for generations, why are we on the verge of not being able to meet electricity for our province? That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's get to our top story. Well, the George Massey Tunnel is the latest piece of infrastructure to be hit by a truck. The Richmond RCMP confirmed a crash happened shortly after 830 830- PM last night. It's the latest in a rash of collisions involving overheight vehicles that last month prompted the province to unveil harsher penalties uh, against the drivers and companies involved. Uh, we learned over Christmas that Johann Freight Forwarders uh, have been involved in six of these in the past two years. To give you a sense of how many we've had, according to provincial records, this crash last night was the 32nd strike by a commercial vehicle in British Columbia. Since December of 2021, we've had 17 of these uh, crashes in 2023 alone. This is the first of 2024. Now, BC did suspend the National Safety Code Certificate of Chohan Freight Forwarders. They are not believed to be involved in this incident at all. It, it That, that uh, suspension grounded the fleet of the 65 commercial vehicles that they have in this province. But the company is part of a group that is, also has a fleet in Alberta. And those vehicles continue to haul freight in BC. And there lies the problem. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming did fire off a letter to the federal minister asking for work be work be started on a unified truck safety system across the country. So not only there is a national issue there, but is also one of a lo- the local challenge that we have at this point. The immediate concern. Now, yesterday, Hannah Greenway was a witness to this incident. Uh, she uh, had a dash cam uh, in her vehicle, and she caught the incident. She spoke to Global News uh, earlier today. Take a listen.
1: I got to the tunnel and it was already very backed up because they were taking care of the overpass that had been hit back in 2023. And a semi-truck in front of me hit the tunnel.
2: And what did you see?
1: Sparks and dust. And then the truck hit its brakes. I hit my brakes too and waited to see what was happening. He kind of looked stuck. And then a few cars behind me started to go around so I started to go around.
0: Well, she's very calm, that's for sure. Now, of course, uh, tremendous amount of concern uh, from uh, obviously motorists, but also elected officials as well. Here's Delta uh, City Councillor Dylan Kruger, who also spoke to Global News late uh, evening yesterday after the incident. Take a listen. To have this major critical piece of infrastructure at risk of being shut down because of negligent driving is beyond embarrassing. Trucks must measure their heights. Heights are clearly marked... 80,000 vehicles a day seem to be able to figure it out. Uh, It's simply inexcusable to see this continue to happen over and over and over again. Now, I want to put this in context for you. Uh, uh, This is probably in November or so. Uh, There was another overpass in Delta that was hit just on the south side uh, of the George Massey Tunnel. We spoke to uh, Delta Mayor George Harvey about that incident. It's a significant amount of damage. Take a listen to his comment.
3: Well, the unfortunate thing is that it's too bad that the uh, the dump truck that hit it didn't hit as little heart because it was almost uh, so bad that they were going to have to replace it. But now they've decided that they have the ability, after all the engineering work that's to, to, been done, to just repair it.
0: And that repair, by the way, will begin this spring. I think it's about $10 million that we'll be spending uh, on, on that repair. <laughs> Poor George, almost, George Harvey almost got himself any overpass, which he wanted anyway. But I'm just saying you get the sense of the damage. Um, to these overpasses. Now, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, I'm sure, is very tired of answering uh, in regards to answering to this uh, situation and these issues. Uh, of course, we have increased fines in this province, but he has also already stated uh, late yesterday, early today, sorry, uh, that there's no excuse for this. Take a listen to his comments to uh, my colleague uh, Mike Smith earlier today.
3: It's never been easier to uh, measure the height of your vehicle with digital tools that we have. It, it, this should never happen. Uh, professional drivers, dispatchers, anybody involved in the trucking industry uh, that has to apply for permits for overweight or overheight vehicles. You know, the conditions of the permit are, are based on what the cargo is that is being carried uh, by the driver. So, you know, route planning is is a basic of any safe delivery of any commodity in, in our province or if they're going over the provincial border to another destination. So there's no excuses is what I'm saying, Mike.
0: Well, I, I don't even know how to address this now. What is the issue that's causing this? Is it a lack of training? Well, then let's go after these schools that are doing the training. Is it the companies that are not providing enough training? Let's go after the companies. Let's hammer them even harder. And that may be part of the issue, that they're just hiring a lot of young drivers. And I don't want to just focus on young drivers. They may not be just young drivers. That's my suspicion. And I'll say that for sure. Is it a lack of training? Are the schools not doing it? Are there too many private schools that have been set up that shouldn't be teaching these new young drivers? Or is it just greater demand for faster, quicker deliveries uh, that uh, other companies are asking for? These customers are demanding. And the companies that are sending these drivers out are putting pressure on these drivers to get going. I don't know what is happening here, but it's unacceptable. And I think government needs to do more. If that means fining these folks, an even higher fine, let's do it. Perhaps it's time we hand them the bill. In the case of that other overpass just south of the uh, Massey Tunnel on the Delta side, that's a $10 million repair. Guess who's paying for that? You, taxpayer. You're paying for that. Maybe it's time we handed those bills over to these companies. But it is not Acceptable. Give me a call in the open line. I do want to hear from you on this issue. What needs to happen next? Yes, we've increased fines. Yes, we're talking about a national system that if you find a company in British Columbia, but if they happen to have trucks in a different uh, province registered there, do we keep them out of BC as well? Maybe that's what we need to do. I don't know. Let's talk a little bit about veterinary care. Now, if you have pets, you know at the best of times, veterinary care can be very expensive. BC's uh, pet owners spend on average about nearly $1,200 on the health of their animals, which uh, is way above the national average of $872, according to the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association. And as a lot of you know, one single emergency uh, surgery can be upwards of five dollars to $10,000. Now, economic euthanasia is a term that is sadly familiar to people working in veterinary medicine and at animal rescue agencies. It's the tragic situation where an animal has the potential to recover, if provided, necessary medical care, but that care isn't available because it is financially out of reach. Now, RAPS, which is the Regional Animal Protection Society, says a white paper may provide some answers. One simple step would be for the federal government to deduct veterinary expenses from your taxes. Joining me to talk a little bit about that issue is Rebecca Breder. She's an animal rights lawyer. Rebecca, thank you uh, for speaking to us today.
1: Thanks so much for the
0: invite. Uh, lots to talk about here. RAPS, the Regional Animal Protection Society, is talking about um, uh, you know making vet bills tax deductible. Your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's a fantastic idea. It's it's an idea that RAPS, the Regional Animal Protection Society, uh, has come up with. That they've been working on this for for a couple of years now, and it's it's really it would be. Uh, I don't know of any other country or place in Canada that would have it, but essentially it's providing tax credits for veterinary care. And and I think given that over 50% of Canadian households have at least one dog or one cat, it just makes economic sense to do that. I mean, companion animals are part of our families. There are many people consider their cats and dogs as part of their family, just as they do their human children and so if we provide tax benefits for health care for people then I think the time has come for providing tax benefits in terms of veterinary care as well and you know I let me just say I don't think it's such a far leap either because it's not like this doesn't exist at all Uh, farmers for example in Canada get tax benefits for providing veterinary care to their farmed animals but it has to be Considered like a, a business expense. You know, this would be slightly different because it's not a business expense, it's, it's, a, it's an expen- personal expense for families. But mm-hmm. it's not like the government would have to start from complete scratch to think of something like this. Mm-hmm. And RAPS did an incredible job at providing kind of a, a blueprint on how this would work. Uh,
0: Do you think it should begin and end with dogs and cats? What if, let's say, I had uh, pet bunnies at home and they required veterinary care or you had a lizard uh, that you kept uh, in a tank of some sort? Um, (laughs) uh, Would it it apply for any pet then, potentially?
1: Well, I mean, I have to say I'll just put in a little... My own thought is, I personally, I don't believe that exotic animals should be kept as pets. Mm-hmm. So I would not be in favor of doing anything that promotes keeping exotic type of animals as companion animals. So I think this would... The idea here is to start with cats and dogs and, and maybe rabbits. I mean, rabbits, they're companion animals, too. And there are so many rescues out there. I think that should apply to rabbits, too. But... Personally, I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as, as extending this to, to lizards and exotic type of animals, and I don't think that's the intent of this, right mm-hmm. now anyway. Mm-hmm. The intent of this is really to focus on, on cats and dogs mainly, and, and probably animals like, like rabbits, and maybe even hamsters, the little guys that we often forget about, but that are part of our families as well. And you know, just also, if, if I could just say one more thing, is that... Like I said, I mean, companion animals really are members of our families. I think anyone who has a pet will most likely agree with me. And B.C., in just a few days, on January 15th, is going to be the first province in Canada that is amending its Family Law Act to recognize the best interests of animals and the consideration of companion animals, that is, in the context of when couples separate. And so the reason why I bring that up is because, again, it's not such a far leap for the government to make that considering animals as family is just the way things are now. And the time has really come that we need to be doing everything we can to promote that and to help people really keep their companion animals and treat them like family.
0: And and you said that was on January 15th, that that becomes law in this, this province?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the law was amended last year, but it's coming into force. Uh, in just a few days, the uh, Family Law Act, yep. and
0: and that that's is that in in other jurisdictions as well, or is this a first for British Columbia for for Canada?
1: It's a first in Canada. It's really exciting. We're really leading the way on that. So sorry, I don't want to like change topics here, oh. but it's just I, I'm raising that because I think it's an example of how governments are recognizing, including our own, that companion animals are part of family, mm-hmm. and so here in British Columbia, that is becoming law in the sense that it's recognized, it will be recognized under the Family Law Act, and, and so it's, it's really, it's an idea that is starting to be enshrined in law, and so providing tax benefits for veterinary care isn't such a far leap.
0: How much of an impact uh, do uh, medical treatments for animals, whether it be ultrasounds or MRIs, what's the cost generally? I mean, you deal with a lot of cases. Can you give me a sense of what cost for animal care is like today, like like for, you know, when you, when you visit a veterinary, veterinary, veterinarian?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they could be astronomical, especially if you don't have pet insurance, which a lot of people don't. And so just going for an MRI or an x-ray is a few hundred dollars. Going for uh, a CT scan and then having that read by and by a radiologist, an expert or a specialist, that is easily a couple of thousand dollars right there. And so, with these unexpected expenses, you know, we always want our our companion animals to be healthy and safe and all that. But just like with humans, we never know what could what can arise. And so, when you have a huge expense like that, what happens more often than we would like to see is what we call uh, economic euthanasia financial euthanasia it's really sad it's basically when people cannot afford the treatment and they feel that they have no other choice but to have their animal put down so if these tax credits would actually exist i think that would really help that financial burden and that financial impact on on people when they're faced with big expenses like that
0: uh, I'm curious, uh, are there any uh, private sector extended health or he- extended medical programs that you know of where extended health applies to pets at all? I mean, obviously employees do have extended health care from a variety of employers, uh, but does, has, has, have any of them ever been extended to pets as well?
1: I haven't seen it, but I love the idea of employers in the same way they extend health benefits for like dental care, medical care for massages and whatever else. As it would be amazing if employers would include veterinary expenses as part of their their benefits package for their employees. I mean, how amazing would that be for for employees and for their companion animals?
0: Well, it's a very interesting conversation. It's part of a white paper from uh, Raps, uh, and they do great work. I know they're based out in Richmond, uh, and. Uh, it's an interesting conversation, that's for sure, and I'm sure that it's not the last time we'll be having it, that's for sure. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much, Jess.
0: Now, yesterday, uh, we had Brad West on the show. He's the mayor of Port Coquitlam, of course, and part of the Translix Mayor's Council. In fact, he heads the Translix Mayor's Council. Uh, And they announced, of course, that uh, as mayors collectively, we had a lot of mayors there at the press conference yesterday, basically saying they're looking uh, for more funding from Victoria and Ottawa. They were speaking there as a unified voice. He did tell us they needed $700 million to move forward, especially with the rapid bus program. Uh, But certainly, it also spoke of uh, another core issue, Uh, which of course is where will transit find its funding long term right now 18 and a half cents per liter of gasoline every time you gas up 18 and a half cents goes to TransLink that funds the system but as you know every time somebody buys an EV they're not gassing up uh, and that person isn't paying the TransLink uh, or transit uh, fee Uh, and that means over the long term TransLink's Budget is up in the air. It is a true existential challenge uh, for uh, the system. I did ask Brad West that question. Take a listen.
1: This is something that
3: has plagued us for decades, and it becomes very much a Groundhog's Day over and over again. Big debates over how do we fund transit? We need these projects, but how do we pay for them? And we never get anywhere. What ends up happening is once a decade or so, Usually tied to an international event like Expo or the Olympics, Mm -hmm. we get a major expansion of the transit system. Other than that, you know, we kind of just carry on with, uh, you know,
1: very incremental improvements.
0: Um, The Mayor West comments there are actually bang on if you think about it. A big event uh, is announced for the city once every 10, 15 years, and then we build a SkyTrain line or we buy more buses or whatever it may be. But what is the long-term way we can fund our transportation infrastructure? Well, one of the ways is mobility pricing, essentially charging you for driving Uh, Every year on the roads and that money that is collected goes towards transit and goes for transportation infrastructure joining me to talk a little bit about mobility pricing is of course Richard Zussman Global BC's legislative reporter Richard welcome. My pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me. Uh, first and foremost, uh, what Mayor West said, I, I would argue, was incredibly correct in regards to waiting for a big event and then we somehow managed to find uh, funding. Where are we as a province, as a region in regards to even looking at seriously the issue of mobility pricing?
4: Yeah, so I heard your conversation you had yesterday with the mayor and then the conversation you had following it. And so I asked Premier David Eby today about exactly this issue. What should the mayors be planning for here? And is mobility pricing, in essence, charging people to be on the roads in the cars? And Premier Eby was very quick to say that it's not. It is not in the conversation, that the way that we're looking at the issue of affordability right now, the government has no interest on bringing on an extra tax for drivers. And the Premier wouldn't even open up the door for a long-term discussion around how do we look at what the future of paying for these projects looks like, uh, especially considering that vehicles are moving towards electric you spoke about this yesterday as as more people drive electric vehicles there will be fewer people consuming gas that means there will be fewer revenues from the gas tax going to transit because that's predominantly how municipalities pay their share now And the premier wouldn't even get into that issue of how are they going to replace lost revenues? And it's going to be something that ultimately will catch up to the government. But for now, they feel they can get to the high road when they say, well, we couldn't possibly talk about this because it will just add extra costs on short-term
0: to British Columbians. Uh, I do recall the question being asked today of the Premier. We do have uh, his answer. I want want people to take a listen to it uh, in regards to his thoughts on what you have just described. Take a listen.
2: We understand the needs of uh, growing communities, including transit, uh, and uh, people need to be able to get around. Uh, And we've seen a huge uh, increase in traffic uh, due to growing population across the lower mainland. Uh, and we have to address that. That's why we put historic investments into transit. Uh, it's it's good to hear from the mayors, absolutely. Uh, but uh, their uh, suggestions for additional road taxes, car taxes, this tax, that tax, this is not the time. Uh, British Columbians are struggling with affordability. Uh, and uh, we'll find ways to support transit as we have to date uh, to make sure people get the services they deserve.
0: Right about now, there's thousands of people stuck in traffic, hoping, wishing there was another, one more lane on that bridge, wherever <laughs> they're going, as they deal with one to three centimeters of snow. Um, Richard, I'm looking at a couple of plans from one mobility study. Uh, for the Lower Mainland, and it said uh, th- there was two plans. It was sort of a, uh, they're rough plans, but the study basically said they would charge about five to eight dollars per day uh, for per household to travel in the in the Lower Mainland. That would gen and each household would pay between eighteen hundred to twenty seven hundred dollars. Some drivers would be exempt, uh, also based on people with low incomes. And it would reduce congestion by 20 to 25 percent under this particular plan, in which it would mean having charging points. So basically, charging points around 12 major bridges throughout the region, right? Uh, and that would be one. The second plan. These are all sort of uh, sort of uh, ideas they've been talking about. Would cost the average person three to five dollars per day. The first one is going to be about five to eight dollars per household. This would also. Um, uh reduce congestion by 20 to 25 percent uh and it would be a thousand to seventeen hundred dollars per day and it would depend on by the zones that you travel uh based on what premier eb says it looks like it's a non-starter and no politician wants to touch it but these studies have been done it's all before the government i guess ultimately right now it's about will Absolutely.
4: It's about will and it's about timing as well. We're in an election year and an election year is not the sort of time that these politicians want to engage in these conversations.
0: I'm curious. I know London has a congestion charge for its city core and they've been talking about expanding it. Other major cities are looking at this as well. Um, Do you ever see a time or do you think leave that to the major cities of the world as a mid-tier city on the (laughs) west coast of Canada? This is not where we need to be headed. I mean, because right now, if you just look at, I mean, people listening to us right now are stuck in traffic. We're, uh, you know, a city uh, of roughly about 2.6, 2.8 million people. And we're having difficulty with a bit of snow. And how we get out of this is billions of dollars need to be spent on infrastructure. Transit is one of them. But we need more bridges, right? We do need more roadways. Cars aren't going anywhere. Even, you know, they could go from fossil fuels to EVs. So be it. But- You know, there seems to be no sort of rhyme or reason in regards to how we're building in this region. We seem to be sort of doing it in fits and starts when pressure builds in one area or a particular accident convinces elected officials to do so. There doesn't seem to be a long-term strategic plan to say we must keep building at all times.
4: Yeah, and we count so heavily on the federal government here. So if all of a sudden B.C. says we need X billion dollars for a new lane on the bridge or a new crossing to the North Shore or an additional SkyTrain lane, all of a sudden Calgary and Edmonton and Montreal and Toronto and Ottawa all say we need a billion dollars too. And squeezing that money out of Ottawa is becoming increasingly harder as federal governments look at the electoral map. Then you have the provincial government trying to prioritize different things in the region. And on top of that, you have municipalities who can barely cover off their share. Ultimately, there's one taxpayer. So the taxpayer is the one that will take the burden of these transit costs. But governments struggle with these long-term plans because they are upfront costs to voters with long-term uh, benefit and voters have a hard time swallowing that. And we are going to remain a mid-tier city unless we invest substantially in this type of infrastructure that allows people to move, not just by car, but by sky train, by bus, by public transit through the region, to a point where it is reliable, consistent and covers enough of the network so that people feel they can actually get where they want to go. And mobility pricing could be the fast track there because it allows for this very immediate influx of money, especially, as I said earlier, we start seeing more gas taxes. And yes, Keith Baldry made this point to me earlier. We're seeing more cars on the road now because of immigration. But as we do move towards that future of electric vehicles, eventually we are going to hit the tipping point where, Combustion engine cars are coming off the road, gas taxes are going down, and just saying we'll we'll figure it out when we get there is not good enough for what requires really good long term planning to solve a complex solution. And and you know, it may take right after an election a decisive victory by whatever party, but it, it feels to me, Jazz, like politicians are so far off from ever being willing to consider this type of mobility pricing.
0: Let's talk a little bit about energy, particularly uh, BC Hydro. Well, the chair of the Energy Futures Initiative is calling for a swift response based on new information showing that BC uh, is emerging as an at-risk area for energy as soon as 2026. Uh, Of course, this uh, comes from uh, a forecast forecast by the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. This information uh, was released by Barry Penner, who was appointed chair for the Energy Futures Initiative, uh, and he joins us now. Barry, thank you for speaking to us today.
3: It's good to be back on your show.
0: Uh, walk me through, what does the information say beyond the fact that we, we could potentially be an at-risk area? What is, what is the reason for this forecast?
3: Uh, the reason is that uh, it's a combination of factors. We have population growth more people generally means we're using more electricity uh we have some large industry and industrial projects taking place in british columbia and uh on the flip side we i guess we just haven't built enough new generation to keep up with that demand and furthermore the uh this report points to plans by the by bc hydro following provincial government policy to phase out uh a, the few limited number of natural gas power plants that we have in British Columbia for generating electricity. There's one on Vancouver Island and one in Prince Rupert, one in Fort Nelson. And uh, together, they could provide about 450 megawatts of electricity,
5: mm-hmm.
3: uh, or to put that in layman's language, for about maybe 400,000 homes. Um, they don't run all the time, but they're, they are available now if they're needed. Um, but the Clean BC policy... Uh, calls for natural gas generation to be uh, retired that's a technical term uh, by 2030 so this reliability report is looking at this and saying all these factors combined have now moved british columbia into the at-risk category last year when they did the assessment bc was not deemed to be in that category and the news is that this year we are
0: what impact,
3: we are building Site C at this
0: particular point, what impact do you think Site C would potentially have, if any, in regards to this at-risk forecast? Could that help uh, perhaps turn things in uh, towards the right direction?
3: Uh, they are aware in this report that it's under construction and it's a planned resource that's coming online. But even so, they are pointing to potential reliability problems, not on your average day of the year, but during peak demand periods, which in British Columbia happens to be on the coldest day of the year and uh ironically that happens to be uh maybe tomorrow for us uh, for this year mm-hmm. uh with the cold spell that's uh, upon us um so it's, it's at those peak demand periods where the utility according to this report is going to be stretched uh to keep the lights on and they may well be able to but uh, under reliability standards you have to be able to do it with a margin. Because mm-hmm. some things can you know unexpected things can happen and they're they're looking forward out, outward bound like two thousand twenty six two thousand twenty seven and they're saying we're not so sure that that reliability standard is going to be met Uh, In regards to
0: uh, uh, BC Hydro uh, acknowledging that they imported a record amount of electricity in 2023, it represented about 20% of the total needs and nearly twice the projected output of the still-unfinished Site C dam. Um, This, to my understanding, is because of drought conditions. That should improve, should it not?
3: We all hope so, uh, but it's pretty hard to control the weather. Um, We've had about a year and a half of Below precipitation, uh, below average precipitation across the province, lower than average snowpacks. And just yesterday, the River Forecast Center uh, gave their first report of the winter about snowpacks. And we have even less snow on the mountains this year than we did last year at this time. And we know that last year it was not enough for us to have enough water to keep our power system self sufficient. So it's possible that the summer coming up or this next year, this, the current year, 2024, we might actually have to import even more power than we did last year.
0: How did we end up here? And before we get to to talking about uh, hydro's power call moving forward, but even now we shouldn't be having this conversation. How do you think we got here? Is it a hesitation on not only this government, perhaps the previous government as well, and and, and perhaps looking at expanding uh, our capacity to, to, to generate more power? What in your mind got us
3: here? Well, certainly you could say there's a a lack of generation capacity. Forecasting is, like the weather, is always challenging. It's often not not accurate. But uh, if you think back to the early 2000s, the Gordon-Campbell government at that time uh, became quite aggressive about saying, look, we're going to open up the the system and ask for more power producers to get involved, Mm -hmm. bring your wind power projects, do your uh, run-a-river projects. Let's get renewable energy happening and and get more into the system after a number of years where there hadn't really been any new projects at all. So there was some catch-up going on. Uh, And then, you know, the opposition was saying, hey, this new power costs more money than the old dams. Well, just like you build a house today, it costs more than it did in the 1950s. That's true. Uh, But as we saw in the California electricity crisis, not having enough electricity is much more expensive than if you pay to have new electricity built. Um, so there was a decision made, I think, during the Christy Clark era um, to slow down the uh, the call for power from the IPPs, Independent Power Producers. And then, of course, under the current regime, the, when they first came to office in 2017, they said we were reviewing these contracts, and they I think they terminated a number of them and said we're not going going to you know, go after this this electricity uh, in the same way anymore. And they said we're going to just do Site C uh, primarily. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of got us to where we are. And now uh, this past summer, Premier Eby announced that the NDP government will now turn to the private sector uh, and ask for some more electricity projects. Um, probably because they realized, they saw what was coming, is that we are now really quite short of electricity
0: so there is that call for new sources of renewable energy specifically I I, I would I'm gonna assume and and you've weren't been elected official being a minister um getting a, a hydroelectric dam built. Uh, Site C, one would argue, is probably the last one we're going to see, certainly of that size and scope. The, the push is towards clean and renewable energy. It appears the focus is going to be on wind energy. Do you think there's going to be enough that we can uh, enough capacity, and that we can create enough wind energy to deal with some of these shortfalls? I mean, I, I think it sounds wonderful on paper, but can we generate enough energy from wind as one of the main sources? We certainly aren't going to do nuclear. Nuclear would, that's another debate. We'll start to do that another day, but uh, there I don't think there's an appetite there for that and if wind is the one that BC Hydro seems to be most interested in can we generate enough energy with our growth that's expected uh, to deal with all of this I mean I would think wind is one but I can't see it being as be- being able to generate enough power compared to a site C
3: it uh, it does produce wind turbines produce energy and in, at a really good site they will produce their rated output at about 40% of the time because it's just not windy all the time. So uh, they will produce energy. The, the trick is you don't really know when. Um, and so there is a difference in the forms of electricity generation between what's called base loaded or dispatchable mm-hmm. electricity that, you know, you throw a switch and it will be there uh, versus intermittent renewable electricity like wind and solar where yes, it produces energy for sure at certain times of the day or certain times days of the month, but not every day and not all day. Um, so for for that creates more complexity for system planners. And that, again, is a factor of why when they look at the reliability, you know, being sure that you will have enough power at a specific time. You, you can't be certain that the sun will be shining or the, the wind will be blowing at that specific hour at your peak demand. So as they look at plans to decommission. The limited amount of natural gas electricity generation in BC. They're saying that's one of the contributing factors to increasing our risk of not have not meeting the reliability standard.
0: Well, Barry, uh, we're going to look uh, at uh, an energy series uh, sometime in March on this show. We'll look forward to having you on at that time to talk about the bigger picture in regards to what we what we need to be doing uh, moving forward. Thanks once again for your time.
3: You're welcome, Jasmine. Just watch for it here at Energy Futures Initiative. We are working on a report. We hope to have some information out by the end of January with some proposed solutions.
0: We were talking about so much conversation, so much of our conversation has been around housing and housing affordability, but Premier Eby was asked about housing today and specifically a flipping tax. Now, we don't have all the details, but take a listen to his comments in regards to a flipping tax.
2: Uh, The flipping tax is coming. If your business is flipping houses it is coming. This is your warning. The flipping tax is coming. Uh, now is the time uh, to get out of that business and to put your money into something productive that helps build our economy for everybody.
0: The flipping tax is coming. The flipping the tax, tax comes for
5: businesses, flipping houses. Yeah,
0: so look, as they say, the devil's in the details and I'll wait till they announce those. But I do get a bit concerned when people just say flipping tax. Well, you know, there are lots of mom and pop home flippers out there that Work hard, have saved some money, been fortunate, sure. Uh, but they put in their sweat equity, they buy a home, they clean it up, they may rent it out for a while, uh, and then they sell it and they make money off of it. Uh, home Depot makes money off of it, which employs people. Uh, you hire uh, tradesmen and women uh, to to work in these homes, they get employed, Right. Uh, we here at Chorus make money. You know how? Because we've got a network around home flipping. It's called home and garden television. It wouldn't exist. We've got magazines that sell that stuff. I mean, it is part of our uh, economy. Now, you know, I can understand if there's somebody who does this, does 20 of them at once. Okay, let's, let's talk about that. But I think the mom and pop home flipper, and if there's a flipping tax, the, those individuals shouldn't be penalized. And maybe I'm in the minority here. I do have concerns that we, 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 we sort of end up vilifying everybody who builds houses. They build supply. I'm not talking about these big, bad developers where they get viewed as bad. They still build supply as well. Uh, and I don't think that's an honest conversation. But I really am concerned if it's a mom-and-pop home flipper, they should be allowed to do what they do.
5: The devil for sure is in the details, and I would definitely need to hear. I'm sure that tax would it would have to scale somehow, um, because yeah, it's not right if this is your first home that you're flipping to to have like in, in, if they just do a flat tax on, yeah. on on flipping homes or flat tax on whatever percent of your profit or something like that. I can see how that would be a little bit ridiculous, but uh, yeah, the people that maybe make their business off of flipping homes, it's uh, maybe I don't know. Tech, there's all kinds of larger companies that have to pay all kinds of taxes that civilians don't have to pay. And if you've chosen this to be your line of work, I know that you also you have cost to cover, you have contractors to pay, you have maybe even architects, you have permits to get permits to get and things like that. I understand it's a business and maybe you'll be in an inordinate cost of doing business. But I also don't agree with Premier E B, and he seems to be intimating and I I might be wrong that flipping homes is inherently taking away supply or it's inherently exploitative because you're whatever jacking up the price and, and to make a profit. And I don't necessarily think that that's the case because who else is going to buy the home I suppose because if you buy a home with the intent to flip you don't really intend to live that the condition of the home might not be such that it's really great to live in anyways
0: yeah and I had uh, I, I talked a little bit about this uh about an hour and a half ago we we're just having a casual conversation with uh, one of our other guests on it and somebody did text me and say uh uh jazz uh the problem is is that the I guess the flippers here they do kick people out so they can renovate and then
5: flip the house so perhaps. That sucks. Uh, yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. But you, you got to renovate. That's true. And I guess in, in Canada, our flipping industry might look a little bit different than say when I started hearing about house flipping, it was shows that uh, came out of the United States that after the housing crisis, because there was an abundance of homes for auction in you know, twenty two thousand nine, two 2009, 2010, 2011. So you could really kind of get in there in a dilapidated home for that had been foreclosed upon and people had been evicted. Then you can really, you know, take a home for $20,000 or whatever, $80,000 and spruce it up to something reasonable. But I think it just might be a little bit, I don't know, different here. Oh, and and was it – remember the uh,
0: last federal election, there was um, a member of parliament for the federal liberals here in in Vancouver, uh, Talib Nur-Muhammad he'd flipped like 20 properties or something like Whoa. that. <laughs> well, that's what he did. That that was That's his- how you
5: make your money. It's a way it is a way to make money. It is a hustle in and of itself and it's not an easy job. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying like get a real job, but it is I mean, when you run a business, there are new taxes introduced all the time.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's going to be interesting. I just, uh, maybe I'm in the minority, but uh, I would love to hear from you. Give us a call on the buzz line. What do you think of a flipping tax? And maybe you do, uh, you know, spend your weekends, perhaps you purchased a home, uh, you do the work yourself, put in that sweat equity to sell a house, make a few extra dollars.